I'm Benita Lee, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, March 14th, 2023. Coming up, we talk with John Perlin about his book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. Perlin's book is in its third revised edition and is on Harvard's list of 100 great books. It follows the rise and fall of human civilizations as they fuel their success and reap their downfall by using trees as a key resource. Perlin's book, first published in 1989 by W.W. Norton and Company, was recently updated and republished by Patagonia. Patagonia's founders, Yvonne and Melinda Schwinnard, were longtime fans of the book and recommended it over the years. When it became difficult to find, they sought out Perlin to see whether he would revise the book for Patagonia. Perlin agreed, and the result is a beautiful hardcover with photos and illustrations that help demonstrate the role of trees as a key ingredient in mankind's technological advances over the millennia. If you've been tuning in to KGNU, you know it's our 2023 Spring Fun Drive. We have a few copies of John Perlin's book as a thank you gift for members who pledge $88.50 or more to KGNU. Pledge online at KGNU.org or call 303-449-4885. Thank you for your support. And now, John Perlin. So thank you so much for meeting with me to, to talk about your book. Yeah. Oh, uh, my pleasure. The book looks at trees from a climate change perspective. I was curious, when it was first published in 1989, was the importance of trees in relation to climate change? Was that on anyone's radar yet? About global warming. I think the seminal book that brought it into the public eye was by Bill McKibben in 1989. The main issue was the concern about tropical rainforests back then in 1989 when the book was published. So what the new edition does too is takes us to the revolution in science of trees over the last, say, 40 years about the value of old growth, for example, the value of trees for rain. Until eight or 10 years ago, people thought that all the rain came from evaporating ocean water. And now they've discovered that trees contribute at least 40 to 50% precipitation, transpiration of trees. And they discovered that trees also act like a relay for bringing rain, for example, Siberian forests are responsible for the rain that falls on China. Uh, another example is the Amazon is responsible for rain that falls in Buenos Aires. And the rainforest of the Congo is responsible for 40 to 50% of the rain that fills the Nile. And also they discovered the very strong importance of roots in carbon sequestration. It's an incredible story. Like before 1994, they believed that the history of climate change was a geological history. The first true tree plays such a central role because it began this whole, you might say, climate movement to make the earth a pleasant place for us to live in. Can you tell me a bit more about that particular tree that kind of started to change the earth in ways that make it livable for us? So is it Archaeopteris? Yeah, okay. So what I'll 
tell you is back then there was just one big continent, right? Kwandalan. So the tree had this, didn't have to cross oceans and things like that to expand. So what we find is that the tree fossils are all over the world because of the phenomena of plate tectonics, right? Okay, so you find the fossils in Oklahoma, and where I was in the middle of Pennsylvania, up in the New York mountains, the Catskills. Then you cross, and in southern Morocco, where they made the biggest discoveries of, uh, there's 150 trunks. And this all happened after the uh, original book was published. What made it the first true tree was it had deep roots to anchor a very large tree about 90 feet in height, and it had branches, leaves. And what's interesting about the first true tree, too, is it's a what's called a transitional fossil in that it has fern-like leaves, but the trunk is like a modern gymnosperm or pine. And this is the tree that I like to say creationists hate because it proves the validity of Darwinian evolutionary theory, because you have the old and the new in one composite. Yeah, just looking at images of that tree made me think of like a Dr. Seuss tree, like a fictional. <laughs> exactly, exactly like the Lorax tree. The atmosphere began to gain uh, much more oxygen, and it took down in tandem carbon dioxide uh, to make the Earth livable for terrestrial animals like us. And it sounded like from your book that animals that, that were in the water were starting to, after this tree had started to change the atmosphere, started to venture onto land. Is that correct? From correct. What was fascinating is wherever the tree's fossils are found, you find what are called the first tetrapods. And tetrapods are us, two arms, two legs, four. And all in the phyla of, of animals, all animals have that feature. For example, a bird has two wings and two bottom feet, for example. And what happened was there were certain fish, like creatures, like the uh, lungfish. And what happened was that the Archaeopteryx debris filled up various parts of the shallow ocean, and we call it eutrophication, which means healing of oxygen from the water. And the fish that could get onto, say, debris from the Archaeopteryx and raise their heads, they could survive and they could escape because, I don't know, have you ever seen pictures of Devonian fish? I, I believe so. To me, they look like sea monsters. Exactly. They look like, like there's a whole group of them uh, that have heads that are like a third of their body with teeth about the same size. And so if you were a little guy and you could breathe, you would just skedaddle onto the land thanks to Archaeopteryx providing the oxygen. So this tree like spread all across the world. It was just everywhere. And with it were these early creatures that had four legs and skedaddled from this nasty sea, right, to the land where everything was milk and honey. John Perlin speaking with how on Earth host Benita Lee. I have Benita here live in the studio with me. Benita, good morning. Good morning. 
I'm really excited to be here for the spring drive. Yeah, it's, like, it's your first fun <laughs> drive, right? Yes, yes. Well, all right. Well, let's knock this out of the park with Benita. She's been a volunteer here for quite a while, uh, taking breaks here and there, but always producing very high quality content. Really good eye for um, interesting interviews. Love it. So this this particular book uh, is about the role of trees and how they're intertwined with our fate as civilizations. It's a reprint. We have copies here at the station for anyone who gives at the 88.5 or above level. You can pick up a copy of this book by John Perlin. The number to call is 303-449-4885. And How on Earth has been going strong since 1992, thanks to the support of listeners like you. And it's a Colorado Broadcast Association award-winning half-hour radio magazine that looks at science stories locally and around the globe. And for over 30 years, your support has allowed this homegrown program to thrive. The How on Earth team is a group of volunteers like myself. It's a mix of professional journalists, scientists, science lovers who share a common passion for science and a desire to share this knowledge with you, the listener. And this is independent community radio at its best. Exactly. And Gary called in from Boulder at the end of the morning magazine. Thank you, Gary. I was wondering who was going to slide in at the very last minute, and it was you. So thank you, Gary. He appreciates the news and information that KGNU offers and listens every morning. Well, thank you for letting us be a part of your morning, Gary. And I invite anybody else who regularly... Uh, has us as it has us in their homes in their car or just a part of their lives every morning to please give us a call and donate something donate whatever is comfortable for you if you do feel that you can give at the 8850 level you can pick up this book only during how on earth or throughout the fun drive you can pick up an anniversary edition a 45th anniversary edition of the mug which has kgnu with the tower in the community holding up the the tower on the front and then a 45 adapter on the back some people are like what is that it's like it's a 45 adapter you know sometimes you gotta gotta explain it to the youngins so (laughs) i want that i want that mug (laughs) well benita we are going to get back to your interview because we know that people are savvy and they will call 303-449-4885 or they will continue to listen without having to talk to anybody by going online to kgnu.org What's, what's in this next segment? The next segment with uh, my interview with John Perlin, he's talking about his inspiration for the book's title, which is The Forest Journey. And it's from the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a poem written around 1800 BC in cuneiform on clay. Gilgamesh ruled the city of Uruk in Mesopotamia, which was the first great city in the Fertile Crescent. And so um, he talks about how the what the poem tells us about civilization and trees. And so... You you came across again and again, it looks like in your research, that there were leaders and poets and other people who made note of that this great loss of forests. And it came into in and out of mythology as well, the anger of gods, or in the example of Gilgamesh, which is where the name of your book, A Forest Journey, comes from. Is that exactly correct? very good? You got your you know, thumbs up. Thank you. Well, do you want to tell this? story of Gilgamesh? Or- sure, I love it. It's I could never, first of all, I could never, never had a title. And second of all, it's, I call it the paradigm for all future civilizations. So Gilgamesh, he wants to really go on a, a building spree, right? And so the only way he could build is by using wood, because especially holy places, temples had to be built out of cedar. For example, the Temple of Solomon 
for the Jews. That was all built with wood too, cedar wood. And so Gilgamesh says, I'm going to be a real dude. And where is he going to get it? And he looks into the hills and the mountains where the cedar is growing. And he leads his men with axes. And it's hard to believe that in this area, which is now totally void of anything growth, that this once used to be just like the Pacific Northwest. Or like Michigan once. Michigan was once the most uh, wooded state in the Union. Yeah, and I, I that was another question I wanted to ask you, but af- after you tell the story of Gilgamesh, but sure. just, I just wonder, what did America look like? Yeah, America looked like the mountains of Iraq, just forests, big trees, like the Pacific Northwest. I think what most impressed me was how all these areas, like you, you take Michigan, Michigan was huge pines. Michigan, by the middle of the 19th century, had lost most of its trees. And and so we moved like westward to the Pacific Northwest. All the major timber companies were located in like Wisconsin, Minnesota. We actually have a Gilgamesh in our national heritage, Paul Bunyan. Ah, that's right. He was a dude, right? He's what every boy wanted to be. America used to, I mean, it's just incredible. America used to be like the Amazon, where there were actually parakeets, parrots. And so Gilgamesh leads this group of people, his followers, to once again, and this is constantly being repeated over the thousands of years, to a forested area. Unfortunately, for Gilgamesh, there was a counterforce, and it represented the First Nation people of that area, the indigenous people, and that was Humbaba. Okay, he was, and this shows you also the different values, is for the conquerors, he was considered a devil. For the people of the forest, he was considered divine, like a god. And so he had this Humbaba guy, he had a, 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 a mouth fire would just shoot out. He was the guy you didn't want to mess with. The problem was, and this is kind of interesting too, is uh, Gilgamesh's pal, um, or maybe lover, was Enkidu, who originally the gods had put on Earth to counter Gilgamesh's imperial dreams against the against nature. So Enkidu and Gilgamesh go to the forest, and they play tricks on uh, Umbaba, and they finally cut his head off. And suddenly, and this is some of the beauty of the ecological beauty, is suddenly all the trees throughout the whole Middle East cry because they know what their fate is going to be. And what they do, and this happened in, oh, on the Mississippi, Mark Twain writes about it, a raft, the wood down the Euphrates River. And the lead raft, has the head of Kumbaba as its bowsprit. This is total oh, civilizations of, how should we say, a hubris, panache, defeating nature. Uh, hubris is overbearing pride. Not only overbearing pride, but a pride, but pride that really gets you in trouble. And that's interesting, though, that Gilgamesh has this somebody who is a counter to him. Who So even within this mythology, there was obviously recognition as far as the trees Oh, the very, that's a very good point. See, okay, if you want to get to the full story, is what happens is Enkidu is created because the gods are very much concerned over the various backwoodsmen 
that Gilgamesh sends out into the wilderness. So you have to understand, it's hard to believe all this Middle East is a, oh, it's a wilderness. And you only have these few cities that are like, like Earth are like these few, maybe forts in the middle of a wilderness. So this is why I say it tells the entire story, bundled the entire story of civilization over the thousands and thousands of years is in Gilgamesh. So then Gilgamesh, he's just so proud of himself, right? But unbeknown to Gilgamesh, and this is what Hubris is, the gods are in council to decide who should live and who should die for this terrible deed. And what happens is, and this was Humbaba's curse, that one of them should die so the other one won't, when he dies, won't have anybody to mourn his uh, death. And that's the greatest terror for a Semite, because like in the Jewish religion, for example, you always want somebody to say Kaddish. But anyway, it's a real Semitic story. There's guilt in it. There's everything. It's a great story. But to focus back, so Gilgamesh is, is celebrating, but Enkidu gets second thoughts, like he returns to his, his nature um, background. And this is the beauty of the poem, is Enkidu says to Gilgamesh, I think we've turned the forest into a wasteland. And he adds, I don't think the gods are going to be very happy about this. And indeed, they weren't, and they were like planning what to how to punish these guys. And so what they do is they decide that Enkidu should die because Enkidu was the spirit of nature and he like oh, became a turncoat against the gods. But Gilgamesh also gets totally punished because nobody will be able to say Kaddish or a Brucha or whatever at his funeral. And so what he does is he starts to wander all over the Middle East looking for the meaning of life. If you're just joining us, that was John Perlin, author and a former professor of physics at UC Santa Barbara. And because this is KGNU's 45th year and our spring drive, we have some very exciting gifts for you. We have some copies of Perlin's book here today, thanks to a generous donation from Patagonia, plus other goodies. If you pledge $88.50 or more to KGNU, you can get Perlin's updated classic, A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees and the Fate of Civilization. You go into just really major civilization by major civilization. Correct, correct. What I do is I first bring up the, I guess you'd call it big time or long time issues. Like the other part is the end Permian extinction where we almost lost everything on earth. And one of the two factors was deforestation. So I point out the difference between fluorescence of trees, just as we've talked about, and how that made the world a living place. And then about, let's see, about 100 million years later, the deforestation on a mass scale, we lost almost all life on Earth. And what's interesting when I delved into it was that people think that the mammals came after the dinosaurs. Actually, the mammals were present in the end, permanent extinction, and they got wiped out. And then it was like, what, let's see, something like 100 million years later that they reappeared. And so then the book proceeds to the misnomered or misnamed Stone Age, which I point out should really be called the Wood Age, because the end of the implements were stone, 
But what made them lethal or, you know, powerful was the discovery by the Neanderthals of using handles. And I've experimented myself with that. And if you just have a, a rock and you try to break something, it's not that uh, successful. But if you have a, ro- a rock tied to a handle, it can really do some damage. Is it the, this, the physics of it? Exactly. So then the book proceeds after that to the first, the first Metal Ages. And the Metal Ages also should be called the Charcoal Ages. Charcoal is a derivative from wood because 95% of the Earth's metals are in ores. We don't find uh, very much what they call native copper or native iron. So we have to extract the metal from the ore. And the only way you can do it is by a very high and very regular temperature. And the only way you can do that is through the use of charcoal. Charcoal is so potent as a fuel because what you do is you remove the moisture from the wood so it's a pure carbon it's very much like coal but it's done by humans you can regulate the heat very easily because that's what you need for extracting oh the metal from the rock see because the rock and the metal have different temperature gradations so one ends up as a fluid and the other one ends up just as debris we call it slag the value is an ore, maybe only 10% of the metal. And without the wood fuel charcoal, you could have never had any metal ages. In your research, did you find that there were patterns that kept repeating themselves? Yeah, we're all human. And we're like, we're smart, but we do the same things generation after generation. And we think we're so clever, but maybe birds are smarter than humans. Birds build incredible houses in the tropics. So we think we have all this, oh, free will and all this stuff, but we do the same things, like cutting down trees. And it seems like there were even connections made over time between erosion, even like illness. Oh, precisely. What's most amazing is oh, people recognize the problem after it's a catastrophe. That That's, a, I guess you might say, it's one of the tragedies of being a human is you create a catastrophe and then suddenly you realize it, but it's too late. That's another oh constant in, in human history. I could go on and on. But yeah, I have those maps, if you recall in the book, of the changing of port cities into landlocked areas in antiquity. And areas that, for example, in the 19th century, when they discovered Troy, people you know, didn't believe it because in the Iliad, they talk about battling on the coast. And what they didn't realize is that the siltation of the Scamander River, which flowed through Troy, created a delta. What happened was, is because they chopped down the wood, the you no longer had the protection of the soil. So the soil fell in the river. And what happens is a river then with the soil starts to build a delta, which then pushes the distance from the sea to a greater and greater distance away. And the delta grew and grew. And so Troy was not at the same geographical place as it was like uh, thousands of years ago. And I actually saw this all because I spent like a week and a half camped out at Troy. So 
here's a question. If did you come across anything in your research that showed that there were glimmers of hope in civilization where people were finding ways to conserve trees? Because I did notice that there were moments where they were leaders would say, we have to conserve this forest, only do this. What did people learn over time? There's continuity in destruction. Stephen Jay Gould, he called it punctuated equilibrium, where once in a while you would get this, these good ideas, but then they would be bypassed. But usually it's just catastrophe. Like, for example, with Gilgamesh, when they cut down all the trees in the uh, mountains, the mountains were no longer protected by the tree cover. So they were just victim to uh, erosive forces of sun, wind, and rain. And so the minerals, which contain lots of salt, flowed down from the rivers into these areas of civilization. Salt does not help crops grow. And it all poured into the river. The river, which used to bring life, brought death. I just want to say thank you so much. I could keep talking to you, and maybe we'll have to reschedule something if you... If you'd like to, I'd be very happy I'm at your disposal because this is my thing, right? was author John Perlin talking about his book, A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees and the Fate of Civilization. This updated classic was recently published by Patagonia, and we have copies from Patagonia for you, our supporting listeners. Our spring fund drive um, is happening now, and you can get this beautiful hardcover if you pledge eighty-eight fifty or more to KGNU. And actually, we only have two copies of that book left, so I want to thank a whole list of people who are picking up the book. Awesome. Thank you. Marty called in from Boulder, and he says KGNU is an essential nutrient for life. And he's picking up a copy of A Forest Journey. Rick also called in from Boulder. His favorite show on KGNU is A Classic Monday, and he is also taking a copy of the book. Great. Fantastic. Stephen called in and is taking a copy of the book as well. And Eric donated online at kgnu.org. He is also picking up a copy of the book. So thank you, Marty, Rick, Stephen, Eric. They're all getting copies of this really beautiful book. There are only two copies left. So if you want to pick it up, I encourage you to call now to 303-449-4885 or go online and donate securely at kgnu.org. Again, we only have two copies of this book left. And your donations help train science news journalists like me. I've been doing this for the past year, and I'm just one example of a volunteer reporter who's learning from seasoned, longtime producers of this program and of other shows. People whose voices on this show you hear regularly include Shelley Schlender, Joel Parker, Beth Bennett, Susan Moran, Jill Shong, and there's so many others from the community who contribute and have contributed to this program over decades, over 30 years. Thank you so much for your support. And so Supporting the show. Also, I, I want to say that something may, maybe, oh, ooh, ooh, before I get into that, let me also say Amy called from Ward and she says KGNU is such an important part of our Boulder Mountain community. She is taking a 45th anniversary mug as her thank you gift. Amy from Ward. Yes. Thank you for calling in. We love hearing from people in the mountain communities. It just like gets us all yay. So thank you so much, Amy. Thank you to everyone who has given during how on earth i have to confess that of all the shows that are produced at kgnu how on earth is my favorite and i know i'm probably not supposed to like favorite children but i do don't tell anyone listeners yeah (laughs) 
But yes, oh, thank you so much to everybody who called in. And again, there are only two copies left of this book, and it's only during this morning uh, hour that you're able to pick it up. So if you want to grab it, grab it now, kgnu.org or 303-449-4885. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show is produced by me, Benita Lee, and engineered by Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And remember to pledge 303-449-4885. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Benita Lee.